I've called this message, The Day the King Walked Past. Just last week, I thought Brendan did an outstanding message on the request of James and John and Jesus once again, speaking on true greatness and explaining then what he has come to do himself, how he is going to give his life away as a ransom for many. And this is what happened then next. Verse 46 through to 52. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Let's pray. Oh Lord, it has been a pure joy to worship you in song. To be reminded of your mercy towards us. To be reminded of all that you've done in our place as you've given your life as a ransom for many. Lord, as we've reviewed the gospel in song, it has been a joy. But now, Lord, as we continue to worship you through listening, would this stir our hearts as well? Would this story affect us? Would we not just go through the motions of listening and making notes, but would we go through the life-transforming effect of hearing the preached word, your word preached to us? Lord, would we not leave unchanged? Would we not leave unspoken to by you? Speak to us, Lord. Amen. Philip Ryken, an author, a theologian, a former pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia and our president of Wheaton College, tells of the following moving story about a family member. In fact, actually his brother-in-law. And this is his story. My brother-in-law is blind. He was not born that way. He used to have almost perfect eyesight. In fact, as an officer in the United States Air Force, Alan used to fly bombers for the Strategic Air Command before becoming a commercial pilot for American Airlines. But in December of 2000, he came down with a life-threatening case of bacterial meningitis. And as his condition worsened, he was airlifted to the University of Texas Medical Center in Dallas. 
At one critical point, Alan was legally dead and had to be resuscitated. He underwent emergency life-saving surgery to relieve the pressure on his brain and spinal cord. He was in a coma for six weeks before finally coming back to consciousness. By the mercy of God, his life was spared, but the damage to his optic nerve was irreparable, and barring a miracle, he will remain blind for the rest of his life. We are all saddened by my brother-in-law's disability, but we do not treat him with patronizing pity. He has many reasons to be thankful. His body is strong, his trust in God is secure, and his family is growing in godliness. He travels widely and has many opportunities to testify to his faith in Jesus Christ. But if Alan could wish for one thing in life, it would be to regain his sight. If Alan could wish for one thing in life, it would be to regain his sight. If there's one man who can relate to Alan, it's this man before us in chapter 10, verses 46 through 52, Bartimaeus. Because if Bartimaeus could wish for one thing in life, it would be that he would have sight. See, having spent much time with Bartimaeus this week, as I've studied him, as I've enjoyed him, so often when I'm preaching, I feel as if I learn to get to know these men. And so it's my privilege to introduce Bartimaeus to, the, to us this morning. And quite simply, once you meet Bartimaeus, and once you hear him, and once you hear of his story, you don't easily forget him. And in headline, that's exactly what has happened to Mark and the disciples. See, Mark very unusually identifies Bartimaeus by his name. And so he says here, it's Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus. That's unique in all the rest of the Gospel of Mark. The people that are having miracles done to them are unnamed. The paralytic, the guy who has demons taken out of him, the one that's healed from their deafness, they're not named. But this guy's named. And this guy's named because he made an indelible impression on Mark and the disciples. His story is unique. His story amazed them. And in truth, what a story Bartimaeus has to tell us. So this morning, I want to do two things. I want to, number one, tell it. I want to tell of the story of Bartimaeus. I want it to be as if we were there. I want it to be as if we can see him as the crowd passes by. I want us to experience what Bartimaeus is experiencing in this moment. And then... I want us to see why this story is here at all. What is it that Mark is trying to tell us? Why has he specifically and deliberately, intentionally put this story right here? Because it is deliberate and the reasons are incredible. So, let's begin by meeting Bartimaeus, a man that if he could have wished for anything in life, it would have been to see and as we meet Bartimaeus this morning, we see him. He's sitting on the roadside in Jericho. He's completely blind. He can see nothing before him. He can't even see the hand in front of his face. And he is begging. Begging, hoping that people will give him money so that he can survive and eat through another 
day. This plight would not have been uncommon to this culture. See, there was no welfare state in this culture at this time. If you had a disability, in particular if you were blind, unless family were helping you, then you would be a beggar. You would have to rely on the mercy of well-wishers as they pass you by. Unfortunately for Bartimaeus, he's chosen a really good place to sit. He's sitting on the main thoroughfare in Jericho, on the main road that would lead everybody to Jerusalem. So this traffic would be intense a lot of the time. This would be a very busy road. And yet, make no mistake, as Bartimaeus sits there on this day, he cuts a sorrowful and pathetic figure. See, sometimes if you read your children's stories from the Bible, particularly if they're picture books, you see moments like this, and you see Bartimaeus happily smiling, sitting on the side of the road. He can't see, so he's got his eyes closed, but he's there with a little bowl, and you think, oh, that's nice, isn't it quaint? But that wouldn't have been the reality at all. This would have been desperate for this man. See, just last week in South Korea, I, I was traveling through the city at one point, and, and in what we were doing, the whole premise was we're walking from one side of the subway to another, and as I come out the subway at the other side, people are very well dressed, and there's just this man sitting on the floor with his head down holding a bowl. His clothes are disheveled, he's dirty, he's got no shoes on his feet, and he's clearly just there begging, will anybody help me? And people are just passing by, almost like disgusted with, oh, can you move to the side? That's what it was like for Bartimaeus. He's in effect a social outcast. And he's seated with his face down, most likely, just with a bowl in front of him, begging, would you help me? I need to survive another day. I'm blind, I cannot see. And yet as he sits there on this day, he hears the sound of something slightly more unusual. He hears the sound of a crowd. And indeed, as Mark tells us in verse 46, the sound of a great crowd. Now, Bartimaeus cannot see, but he can hear. And as with all people that are blind, the rest of their senses become heightened. And so the hearing becomes even more perceptive. And so Bartimaeus, as one commentator says, Bartimaeus in effect sees with his ears. And as he sees with his ears on this day, he notices there is quite clearly a great crowd approaching. And it would appear that somehow as they approached, Bartimaeus is informed that in this crowd, and indeed the reason for the crowd, is one Jesus of Nazareth. So this is his response in verse 47. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. See, this is so hard to imagine for us, I think. Because none of us, as far as I'm aware, have ever been completely blind. And none of us, as far as I am aware, have ever had to beg because of how profound poverty. And so it's hard for us to imagine what is going on in the life and heart of Bartimaeus in this moment. But I want you to understand, this is a cry of desperation. There is no politeness going on here from Bartimaeus. He is desperate. He is sitting with his face to the ground begging for money and yet he hears the crowd and he's aware Jesus of Nazareth is in that crowd. 
So in desperation, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He's not struggling with fear of man in this moment. He's a desperate man that is aware there is one in that crowd that can change my life and I need him. This is without doubt a cry of desperation. And yet what it also is, if we're honest, is a cry of faith. She noticed what he says. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He's told that Jesus of Nazareth is in the crowd, but when he addresses Jesus, he addresses him as Jesus, son of David. That's hugely significant. See, that title was a messianic title, a title that centered into the promises of God made to King David and the ultimate promise then that one greater than David was to come. One who would be truly great through the line of David, one who would be sovereign over all, one to whom the scepter would never leave. One to whom who would come and put all things to right. One who would come as the true eternal king of all. The good shepherd and the true eternal king of all. And as Bartimaeus cries out to him, he uses that term. Jesus, son of David. He's in effect saying, Jesus, I know who you are. You're the king we've been waiting for. You're the son of David. See, we can safely assume that as Bartimaeus sits at the side of this road day after day after day, he will have heard numerous conversations happening before him. The talk of the town was Jesus. Everybody was talking about Jesus. He would have no doubt heard the Pharisees and the scribes as they make their way to see Jesus and as they come back from Jesus, talking about him, talking about what's happening with him, talking about what he's doing. He would have no doubt heard the crowds at different times as they passed by talking about Jesus. And so Bartimaeus would have known Jesus is incredible. Jesus has authority in his teaching like no one else. Jesus has authority over nature. Jesus is the one who walked on water. He's the one who stood up in a boat and commanded that the storm be stilled and it stopped in a moment. Jesus is the one who took bread and a few bits of fish and fed the 5,000 plus men and children and then 4,000 plus men and children. Bartimaeus would have known that Jesus is the one that has authority to cast out demons from people and in a moment those demons release. And most significantly for Bartimaeus, he would have known that this is the Jesus who heals people who healed the paralyzed man, who healed the deaf man, who even, as we saw in chapter 8, heals the blind. And so as Bartimaeus is there begging on the side of the road, he's aware, you are him. You, Jesus of Nazareth, this is my assessment of you. You're the king that we've been waiting for. You're the great son of David. And Lord, I've got nothing. But Lord, would you have mercy on me? It's a cry of desperation, but it is also a cry of faith that you can change my life. I believe in you. I trust in you. One commentator, James Edwards, says, What Bartimaeus lacks in eyesight, he surely makes up for in spiritual insight. And so clearly he does. 
So he's begging on the side of the road this day with his face to the ground, holding a bowl for money. He's aware this is Jesus of Nazareth in town. This is the son of David. This is the sovereign great king that we've been waiting for. He can change my life in a moment. And so he cries out in desperation and full of faith, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Well, the crowd are at best unimpressed by what is going on here. The crowd are not amused at all that this Bartimaeus, this social outcast, is speaking up in this way. Minimally, it is embarrassing for them. And so they say in verse 48, as Jesus gets close, it says, And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. I mean, you could just imagine the scene, can't you? You could just imagine what is really going on here. You've got this desperate blind beggar realizing this is Jesus crying out with a loud voice for attention and help. And the crowd just turned around going, whoa, whoa, easy fella. Can you just shut up? You smell a bit. You can't see. There's a lot of important people around here. You are not one of them. So shut up. They're not amused at all. They want to put themselves in front of this guy to say, hey, listen, I'd love a chat. (laughs) Don't worry about him. Shut up. It doesn't tell you why the crowd is unimpressed, but I think we can imagine. Because you remember the children in verses 13 and 16. The parents are bringing the children to Jesus. What are the disciples doing? Go, oh, this is lovely. No. The disciples in that moment are going, whoa, 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 ease off, guys. Kids are not that important. They're a bit of a nuisance in that culture. They were second-class citizens. So ease off, guys. Jesus is an important guy. Take the kids away. There's more important people here that need to meet him. I think that's what the crowd is doing in this moment with Bartimaeus. Listen, Bartimaeus, shut up. Don't embarrass yourself or us. There's more important people here that need to meet Jesus. You're not one of them. So be quiet. Well, I'm convinced that Bartimaeus may be Australian, honestly. Because... Upon this news from the crowd, it just eggs him on. You know, it's one of the things I love about this culture. You tell people not to do it, so they go, mm-hmm, I'm going to do it all the more. You know, I think Bartimaeus is like that. Bartimaeus, when he receives this rebuke from the crowd, in this moment, it eggs him on. It says, and many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. Bartimaeus, shut up. But he cried out all the more. Son of David, have mercy on me. The crowd want him to shut up. It eggs him on to shout even the louder. He's not struggling with the fear of man in this moment. He is just desperate and full of faith and knows Jesus can change his life. And then I think we read some of the most wonderful words in the whole of this gospel. Because here's what happened as we read just very slowly. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped. That's incredible. See, Jesus, even now, is on his way to Jerusalem. Chapter 10, verse 32, we read, And they were on the road going to Jerusalem. Jesus has set his face like flint to enter into Jerusalem 
where he will be mocked, where he will be spat upon, where he will be flogged, where he will be killed. That's where Jesus is going in this moment. Have you considered what that would feel like for him? The dread that would be coming in his heart as he makes this walk. The anguish and the distress as he realizes, I'm going there. I'm going there to die. He's making his way very purposefully now to Jerusalem, not for a holiday, not for tourism. He's going there to give his life away as a ransom for many. You know, just this week, I had to go to the dentist. It was horrible in every way. On Tuesday night, my tooth started hurting. Two things happened in that moment. One, how am I going to last the night? That's what I'm thinking at the moment. I'm just thinking my tooth is hurting. It might be to do with the fact that I cracked it a year and a half ago. I never did anything about it. I'm not sure. Um, but Tuesday night, it is, it is hurting. It wasn't hurting. I'm having dinner, and then all of a sudden, it is hurting. And you know when you can feel your heart in your tooth? It's like, how did it do that? I don't know. But, but it's like, this is so painful. And so the first thing I'm thinking is, man, that is painful. And how am I going to make the night? The second thing that I'm freaking out about is, this is going to mean I'm going to need to go to the dentist. And I hate dentists. Those drills are the work of the enemy. You know, as they touch your tooth, you just think, this is so painful. And so I spent the night with a very small degree of anxiety and anguish and distress. I'm nervous about what is going to happen the next day because I know what is to come and I'm not happy about it. And so my kids are speaking to me. I can't even hear them. My wife's addressing me. I can't even hear them because I'm just like, oh my gosh, I'm going to the dentist. That's just to go to the dentist. And that's pretty sad. Jesus is on his way to a place where they will whip him with a whip with bones and glass in. And as they whip it, it will tear flesh from his body. They're going to mock him and beat him. They're going to drive nails through his hands and his feet. And for the first time in Jesus' eternal existence, He's going to have the Father turn his face away from him and pour his righteous wrath out on him. Imagine what he's feeling in this moment where as the King of kings and Lord of lords, he knows exactly what is going to happen to him. And he's on the way there now. Anxious, anguish, distress. And yet, as this outcast, this blind guy, calls to him, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus isn't preoccupied like I am when I know something bad is coming. Even in the midst of the horror that he knows he's coming, Jesus stopped. That's incredible. Jesus stopped and said, call him. You know, no one in the crowd at this moment is wondering, oh, I wonder who he means. Call who? They all know exactly who. Call blind Bartimaeus. And so we read in verse 49, and they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. I mean, talk about a change of direction in the crowd. Just a verse earlier, they're like, shut up! 
Give us a break. Just pipe down. Jesus, oh, what's that? Jesus called him. Oh, certainly. Hey, cheer up, mate. Yeah, yeah, it's good. Yeah, he wants to see you. I'll help you over. You know, it took about, it took about two-faced in the crowd at this moment. They've had a radical turnaround. But hey, blind man, listen. Bartimaeus, I don't get it, but he's calling you. So cheer up. Take heart. I mean, he wants to speak to you. I mean, you can only even imagine at this moment how the crowd and how Bartimaeus must be feeling. In verse 50, we read, And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. I bet you he did. He's aware this is going to change my life in a moment. Jesus is calling my name. My ticket is up. Jesus is coming after me. So he springs to his feet. I assume he's probably running to Jesus in this moment. And you can almost sense in the air the expectation and anticipation of what is about to occur. For surely Jesus is going to do something that is going to change this man's life. And from then on, it all seems to happen so very fast. For Bartimaeus, verse 51. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. So Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight. You cannot help but wonder what that must have been like for Bartimaeus in this moment. His sight wasn't restored gradually over time. His sight was restored fully. Boom! In a moment, his eyes went from blind to he can see. What would it have been like when he realizes the first face he sees as his eyes are opened are Jesus's? The son of David the king that he knew him to be. This great miracle maker, this great teacher and rabbi, the one everybody had been waiting for is standing before him. And what would it have been like then as he begins to turn his head around and he sees trees and and grass and houses and people's faces, some that he would have known as familiar by their smell and through his ears, but now he sees their faces and he Sees what they look like. What must it have been like for the crowd as they look on and go, whoa. I mean, when somebody does an amazing magic trick, what does everybody do? They go, whoa, how did he do that? That's what the crowd would have been doing in this moment. Like, whoa, that guy was blind. We were telling him to shut up. Jesus called him. Now he can see. You know, I can't help but imagine that in this moment, there is some happy pandemonium breaking out in this street. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I don't think Bartimaeus is British, okay? I don't think that in this moment he would have gone, oh, oh, thank you very much. Um, Really appreciate that. In fact, let's give him a round of applause. I don't think that's what would have happened in this moment. I think Bartimaeus would have gone, I could see and been utterly amazed. I mean, this is the guy that twice called out to Jesus very loudly, the crowd tell him to shut up, and he just calls out louder. I don't think now he's going to be Mr. Reserved. You know what I'm saying? I think he's going to stand up and be absolutely ecstatic of, I was blind, but now I can see. 
I was a beggar this morning, but now I can see everything. I can see Jesus. I can see you. My life has been radically transformed. Did you see what he did? That's what would have been going on in this moment. No one would have had to say, hey, guys, I'm just thinking, should we just honor Jesus for a moment? No one is saying that. Everybody knows instinctively Jesus has changed his life. And they're amazed. And Bartimaeus is utterly amazed. And so we read in verse 52, and immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Mark's helping us see there that it wasn't just physical blindness that this man was healed from in that moment. It was spiritual blindness as well. In that moment, this man had become a disciple of Jesus Christ. In that moment, his life had been radically transformed. He had gone from blindness to sight, from death to life. He was now a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, a disciple of Jesus Christ. Bartimaeus began this day as a blind beggar, sitting on the side of a dirty road in Jericho, and yet by the end of the day, he leaves that place as a seeing follower of Jesus Christ. He is healed and saved. His, radically, his life has been radically transformed by his encounter with Jesus Christ. And so, what a story, don't you think? What an amazing story that is. And yet, that is where this story concludes. And yet, the purpose of the story has not concluded at all. It just got started. See, this story has been specifically put there by Mark for the original readers that would have heard this gospel for the first time and indeed then for us as we read it now, as people that are also seeking to understand what Mark's trying to tell us. And so what does it all mean? Why has Mark put this story here? What is it that Mark is trying to tell us? What does he want us to learn? And why is it then that he specifically placed this story right here? You see, all the miracles in the Gospel of Mark are put in deliberately at specific times because he wants to emphasize something for us. He wants to show us something. And so what is it that he wants us to see? This is the final miracle in the Gospel of Mark. So if you're looking forward to more miracles in weeks to come, negative. There aren't any more. This is the last one. And as we will see next week, the start of chapter 11, Jesus then enters Jerusalem. This is the final stage of the story. And so why has he put this miracle here? Here's why. This miracle is here because it has symbolic significance and implication for us in relation to conversion and discipleship. It isn't just a miracle. Mark is using it as an allegory, as a picture to teach us things about conversion and discipleship that he wants us to understand through the blind man's healing, namely Bartimaeus. See, in chapters 8 through 10, that's all one section in the Gospel of Mark. It's the discipleship section. Three times then we have three separate predictions from the Saviour of his impending suffering and death and resurrection. Jesus has been preparing his disciples very specifically for what is going to take place when he enters Jerusalem. And they don't get it. They don't understand it. 
But starting next week, they're going to start remembering. It's going to start making a lot more sense to them what he said three times to them when they're on their way to Jerusalem. For three chapters then, Jesus has been in a very concentrated way seeking to teach them about what it means to be a follower of him even when he's gone. What true discipleship really is going to mean for them even after he has died and resurrected and gone to sit at the right hand of the Father. Now you will notice if you remember and if you've been paying attention at the start of this section in chapter 8, verse 22 through 26, what happens? The healing of a blind man. And now at the end of the section, what happens? The healing of a blind man. That isn't an accident. That's deliberate. Mark wants to show us them very deliberately. It is a deliberate, intentional, and purposeful healing put there by Mark. Effectively, the whole section is bookended with two wonderful healings of blind men. And he does it very deliberately because these two miracles of sight are meant to teach us something today about conversion and discipleship. So what does it all mean? Why has he put it here? Three things, just to close. Number one, that true conversion takes a cry. True conversion always takes a cry. See, in so many ways, that's what the Pharisees and the scribes never understood. The Pharisees and the scribes, as far as they're concerned, as far as they're spending time, they're like, hey, Jesus, we really don't need you. Because we've got this. Through our behavior, through our obedience to the law, heaven is surely going to be our home. We're fine, thanks very much. In fact, you're just irritating us. So we don't want anything to do with you. As far as the Pharisees and the scribes are concerned, conversion, all that means for them is obeying the law and then surely heaven will be their home. The rich young ruler in verses 17 through 31, he doesn't get it either. Pay attention, he says, what must I do? to inherit eternal life? Wrong question. What do you mean, what must I do? He thought that it was all about him. Okay, so I've created my wealth. I've been obedient to God's word. So listen, just one final piece missing for me. What can I do? What must I do to inherit eternal life? He's assuming that Jesus will give him a list of 10 things. He'll go smash it out and then eternal life will be his. Thinks it's all about him. It's going to be something that he can do in and of himself, which indeed he couldn't. And then there's the disciples. Now, oh, I like these guys. I'm going to miss them when we move on from the gospel. You know, they are, they're, they're getting there. They're on a journey. They're not quite there yet, though, are they? I mean, Jesus has just predicted for the third time, listen, when we get there, I'm going to be mocked and spat upon and flogged and killed. Immediately, they respond with, hmm, Thanks for that. Okay, so I'm thinking, listen, when you get there, can I sit at your right and can my friends sit at your left? You know, in the Gospel of Matthew, it says that James's John mum speaks up as well. So James's John mum, who loves her boys, very proud of her boys, you know, clearly James and John go to Jesus, they have this chat, he starts to explain to them, it doesn't quite work like that. You know, I can just imagine James and John returning to the moment and saying, oh, mum, you know, he said that we can't. And well, don't you worry about that, boys. I'm going to have a chat, Jesus. We need to talk. You know, I could just, she's, she's basically saying to him, listen, I know you're not a big fan of them sitting here right and left, but, but I really like them, and I think they've done a lot for you. No one gets it. 
Everybody thinks that salvation is theirs to be done by themselves, that they can do something through which they will be saved. No one gets it until we account of this guy here, a beggar, sitting on the side of the road in Jericho, named Bartimaeus, who gets it. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, I've got nothing. I've got nothing to offer you. I'm blind. I don't own anything. Nothing in my hands I bring. I've got nothing to offer you, but Jesus, I know who you are. You are the King of kings and Lord of lords. And so would you have mercy on me? And Mark wants to show us that because he wants to help us understand that true conversion always takes a cry like that. See, maybe you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Listen, I want to encourage you, my friends. It's important you realize you will never be able to earn or nice your way into heaven. It's the message of the whole of the Bible. You'll never be able to do enough. God has called you to love him with all your heart and all your mind and all your strength and all your soul from life's first cry to final breath. No exceptions. Well, we can't do it. Pharisees tried, failed. Scribes tried, failed. Rich young man tried, failed. Disciples just don't really get it. No one can do it. But that's why Jesus came. He came to do it for us. True salvation doesn't come by going to church, doesn't come by praying. In the same way that, you know, just because you go to McDonald's doesn't make you a burger, going to church doesn't make you a Christian at all. just means you go to church. You know, just attending things doesn't make anybody a Christian. The Pharisees would have been here every week, early and stayed till late. Not Christians. Not truly saved. Not converted. True conversion takes a cry. My friends, if you don't know Jesus, I want to encourage you. The Bible clearly tells us that God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that anybody who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. There's only one way to not perish. There's only one way to have eternal life, and that's through putting your faith in in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. It's being like Bartimaeus in this moment and realizing, Lord, I've got nothing. I've got nothing to offer you. And even if I did, it would be rubbish. But Lord, I believe you're the King of kings and Lord of lords. So Lord, would you have mercy on me? And then what you discover is in that moment, he stops. And he says, yeah, I will. Welcome home. I forgive you. I redeem you. I adopt you. Heaven will be your home because it was never about you. It was always about me. My friends, true conversion always takes a cry, but that's not all. Number two, true conversion always takes a miracle. You see, for these disciples, as we've seen, they're definitely making progress. They're on a journey with the Lord, and yet they still don't quite get it yet. And Mark wants us to see that. He wants us to understand that, guys, you know, he's consistently painting the disciples in a bad light deliberately because he wants us to know, yeah, we didn't really get it. We're just sort of hanging out with Jesus. We did not get it at this point. And yet by the end of their lives, as you read the end of the Gospels and then Acts and their letters, you realize, man, they totally got it by then, didn't they? 
Their lives were transformed. They believed in Jesus with all their heart. They had eyes to see. Their lives have been radically transformed as they realized we're forgiven of our sin and we're redeemed and heaven is surely our home. Many of these men went on to give their lives for Jesus. They died for their faith because they were so amazed by all that he really is and who he truly is and all that he has done for them. Well, the reason for that dramatic change in the disciples' life is because at one time or another, post the death and resurrection of Jesus, Jesus stopped and gave them the miracle of sight as well. Just like he did with blind Bartimaeus. He opened their eyes to the reality of who he really is, and they saw and they rose and went forth and followed thee. And what Mark wants to help us see through this story of Bartimaeus is that was a miracle for him. And that was a miracle for the disciples. And in reality, true conversion is a miracle for you as well. See, my friends, I don't know all of your conversion stories and your testimonies. But here's what I do know. If you're here today and you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that is a miracle. Whether you grew up in a Christian home and got saved listening to a CD when you were seven, or whether you lived a worldly life and got saved at 88. If you're saved, that is a miracle. Because you were dead in your transgressions, it says. You were far from the Lord and cut off from the Lord. You never would have cried out to the Lord had he not priorly worked in your life and started to open the eyes of your heart. As we said when we're on retreat, we are dead. It's not like we're just bobbing in the water saying, Hey Jesus, any chance you could help me? We are dead in the water. We are drowned. And then Jesus comes over and he plucks us from the water. He breathes life into our hearts. He starts to open the eyes of our hearts, at which point we say, Oh my, Lord, have mercy on me. And he says, Yeah, okay, I will. And he forgives you and redeems you and adopts you and gives you heaven as your home and sustains you all the way until the day when he calls you home. It's a miracle just like it was for Bartimaeus. How is it that he knew that Jesus is the son of David when no one else seems to get it? It's because of the miracle that already began in his heart way before Jesus started walking past. So by the time he started walking past, he's already there. I've got nothing, but I know who you are. Have mercy on me. And Jesus stops and goes, yeah, I will. I'll heal your eyesight and I'll heal your heart as well. You're forgiven, you're redeemed, heaven is your home. Now come, follow me. Friends, if you're a Christian here today, then you, like me, should be the most grateful, humble, and amazed person walking the planet. Because your salvation is all a work of grace. It's all him. And Mark wants you to see, you know Bartimaeus? You're Bartimaeus. This is you. And if you know him as your Lord and Saviour, you may as well insert Bartimaeus into your middle name because this is you. True conversion takes a cry. True conversion takes a miracle. And then finally, true conversion means following Jesus. Verse 52. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Bartimaeus in that moment realized, 
You're the King of kings and Lord of lords. You've just healed me. You've saved me. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to rise and go forth and follow you. I'm coming after you. You're my king. You're the one I want to be with. I don't want anything else other than you in my life. Bartimaeus is an incredible individual because the ultimate disciple at this point is not one of the twelve. The ultimate disciple at this point is Bartimaeus who understood having had my life radically transformed by you. I know what I'm doing. I'm following you. I'm coming after you. And Mark wants to help us see that true conversion means that for us. True conversion means following Jesus. See, it's all too easy, I think, sometimes as Christians, particularly when we're young, to think of Christianity like this. You know, you're just going along in a car, you don't know about Jesus, and then, whoa, you see him hitchhiking on the side of the road, and you think, sweet, he looks like a great guy. And apparently if I put my faith in him, he, he forgives me and redeems me and adopts me. This is awesome. So you drive along to him and you say, hey, Jesus, will you, I want you to be the Lord and Savior of my life. He says, I will. And you say, excellent. Get in the back seat. Now I've got a life to live, but I want you with me because you're my ticket to heaven. And if I need anything, I know you're there for me. Whereas what Mark wants to help us see is that true Christianity, true conversion is when we realize we are without Jesus and then we see him on the side of the road and we get out of the car of our life and say, you, take the wheel now for me. You're my king. You're everything I want to live for. You are my savior and my Lord and I'll get in the back. I trust you to take my life now and I just want to follow you. Bartimaeus got that. He understood that. And Mark wants to help us see we must understand that as well. It's a miracle of grace that we saw. It's a miracle of grace that we cried out. So we must now rise and go forth and follow him. So friends, I want to encourage you, don't put off till tomorrow then what needs to be done today. Follow him today. Run after him today. Let him take the wheel of your life today. What we have here then is far more than just a story. It's a great story, but it's way more than that. It is a deliberate and intentional and purposeful story of a miracle put here to us by Mark to teach us something of conversion and discipleship. And so I want to encourage you, my friends, live in the good of it. True conversion takes a miracle. True conversion takes a cry. And true conversion means following Jesus. And so humbled and grateful and amazed would that be our story. Amen? Let's pray. Well, Lord, we prayed at the start that you would meet with us. And Lord, I've sensed you here throughout this time doing exactly that opening our eyes afresh to see how incredible you are. For we were once lost and dead, but now we are found and can see. Lord, our stories then, like blind Bartimaeus, are all of grace. Would that always amaze us and humble us and cause us to praise? Because it's all about you. In Jesus' name, amen.